Welcome to the Ackerman Angle, your resource for what you need to know about wage and hour compliance. I'm Damian Delaney and I am co-chair of Ackerman's Wage and Hour Practice and a partner with the firm based in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeff Kimmel, co-chair of Ackerman's Wage and Hour Practice and a partner based in the firm's New York office. Uh, today we're going to be going in a somewhat different direction. Uh, we have with us a guest, uh, our partner from the New York office of Ackerman, Janera Tice, who is uh, part of our traditional labor practice at the firm. And Janera is going to talk to us about how traditional labor issues intersect uh, with many of the wage and hour issues that we, that we all see, know, and love. Um, so our, for our viewers out there, you may have a question about what traditional labor law entails and how it differs from employment law or wage and hour law, and of course, how that could um, intersect with with traditional labor. So uh, without further ado, um, introducing Janera Tice, our esteemed partner in the traditional labor department. Hi, Janera. Thanks so much, Jeff, for uh, that introduction. And Damien, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to sort of get right into it. You know, oftentimes in my practice, uh, when I tell people that I'm a traditional labor lawyer, they always ask me what that actually means. Uh, and what you find is that traditional labor law is um, markedly different um, from uh, an employment practice and uh, typically involves uh, all of the rights that private sector employees are afforded under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, the National Labor Relations Act is the leading federal legislation uh, providing private sector employees with the right to form, join, or support a union or um, to actually abstain from engaging in those activities. Um, the act also provides to private sector employees uh, the right to uh, engage in concerted activities uh, with other employees uh, for mutual aid or protection. And so uh, what you see typically in the traditional labor space um, a lot of employees have the ability and are protected to engage in activities where they are discussing uh, their wages in terms and conditions of employment uh, with each other. And it typically will dovetail into wage and hour issues uh, in that most employees uh, raise a lot of their wage and hour issues uh, with their employer uh, prior to actually moving forward with a wage and hour lawsuit. So Janera, I have a question for you. You know, employers from time to time I've seen, you know, have policies that basically say, you know, employees should not be talking to each other about how much they're being paid, about their compensation. Um, is that an issue under traditional labor law? Is that a violation of the National Labor Relations Act in any way? Absolutely. So uh, under Section 8A1, of the National Labor Relations Act, uh, employers are prevented from engaging in uh, any type of conduct that's uh, believed to reasonably coerce employees in the exercise of uh, their Section 7 rights, uh, which give them the ability to actually discuss their wages uh, with each other. And so to the extent you have an employer um, who has a, a rule that uh, precludes 
employees from discussing their wages with one another. Or uh, if you have uh, an employer who gives a command, even if it's orally, uh, to employees present, preventing such conduct, uh, that would be considered a violation under the National Labor Relations Act. One of the things that's uh, important uh, when it comes to uh, employers who find themselves um, potentially dealing with uh, wage and hour issues, they have to be very attuned to um, how they learn about um, particular uh, wage issues that, that employees might raise. Um, the National Labor Relations Act is very nuanced and uh, how it uh, determines whether employees are engaged in protected concerted activity. Uh, typically, you would expect, you know, when you hear the word concerted, that to mean that you need uh, at least two employees or more uh, in order for a particular act to be concerted. But uh, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, which is the federal agency responsible for enforcing uh, the NLRA, uh, they've actually started to expand uh, on the definition of what's considered to be protected concerted activity. Uh, and in that expansion, they're starting to find that even having one employee who raises wage complaints on behalf of uh, an entire group of employees, uh, that activity could be protected. Uh, in addition to uh, a, a line of cases that's also uh, presuming that even if someone raises complaints solely based on their own wage issues, because it has an effect on all employees within the workplace, that too would be protected activity uh, under uh, the National Labor Relations Act. So that's interesting, Janera. It sounds like an employee who is speaking up, even if they're not speaking up with the consent of other employees or, or with the participation of other employees, they're just speaking up on their own. Maybe nobody else in the workplace supports them, but, but the NLRB still considers that to be protected activity. Right now, under uh, the current uh, general counsel leading the NLRB, that's very much um, her take uh, on uh, the reading of the act, and she has been moving forward with uh, prosecuting uh, employers uh, on that theory if they happen to take retaliatory measures against an employee who raises such complaints. And, and you know that brings up this whole this whole discussion actually brings up like a very basic point that I think is a misconception among employers, um, which is that the, the National Labor Relations Act and the jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Board is not just limited to union activities, right? Or you know issues regarding collective bargaining, um, right? So it, it's you know, an employer can get in trouble with the NLRB uh, for violation of the act, even if it's not a unionized shop or it's not a situation where employees are trying to unionize. Is that right? No, you're absolutely correct about that, Jeff. Uh, the act does apply to uh, pretty much most private sector 
employers, regardless of whether they have a unionized workforce or not. And so it becomes particularly important for non-unionized employers uh, who may not necessarily uh, deal with sort of labor relations issues uh, on a frequent basis to at least make sure that they are staying uh, connected to uh, traditional labor council for these very, very unique and nuanced issues. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that with traditional labor law, um, the National Labor Relations Board is governed by a five-member board um, that serves as a quasi-judicial body to determine uh, NLRB um, matters of case law, uh, but those board members oscillate based on who's in the president's See, The president has the ability to appoint those board members, and so oftentimes you see um, huge pendulum swings uh, in case law based on uh, whether there's a Democrat or Republican in office. And for that reason, uh, if uh, you have an employer that is constantly uh, seeing different wage and hour issues come up, it, it's worth them at least getting some consult from traditional labor counsel so that to make sure that they're staying on top of the law. So are, can you give us some circumstances under which you've seen sort of this intersection? Like how does it come up you know, how do wage and hour issues intersect with, you know, NLRA claims? Like what type of cases do you generally see? So typically what um, I've seen is employees who engage in protected concerted activity as sort of a first step before they get to an actual filing of a wage and hour claim. And so uh, to give you an example, you might have a group of employees uh, during their, uh, the end of their shift, they wreck it, they get their pay stubs and they see that they may not have been paid for the time that they spent um, changing in and out of their uniforms. And they start to have conversations among themselves about how they don't think it's appropriate, how they think it's unfair, they've been gypped, and they appoint uh, one individual to raise this complaint uh, on behalf of um, the employees and bring it to the attention of management. And they talk to their supervisor, raise it, uh, and uh, employees see that nothing happens, nothing changes. And they then go back and have a conversation and decide to file that wage and error complaint. All of a sudden, once that complaint um, is filed, uh, an employer uh, proceeds and actually terminates those employees. And so in that particular instance, you have the protected concerted activity that the employees engaged in when they spoke amongst themselves about uh, their issue with their pay stub. You have the protected concerted activity that took place uh, when the employee raised that complaint uh, on behalf of uh, their fellow employees with management, and then uh, filing the complaint in and of itself uh, could be viewed as uh, protected concerted activity. Uh, and on the flip side of that, uh, any adverse action taken against those employees, including a discharge or any other type of adverse action, like maybe a suspension or a transfer, uh, 
could also uh, be considered not only a violation of the National Labor Relations Act, but also a violation of the FLSA. Uh, and so in that sense, you'll likely see uh, two separate um, litigation matters uh, that move, that proceed, one with the NLRB uh, and the other with the DOL. So the, you know, we often as employment lawyers, right, if there's employees who are even threatening to make a claim, even pre-lawsuit, right, they're threatening to make a claim about allegedly being paid improperly. You know, we, t we advise the employer that, you know, if you take adverse employment action against those employees, that could be a whole separate claim under the Fair Labor Standards Act, under the FLSA, for retaliation. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is that not only could that create a claim under the Fair Labor Standards Act, but that could potentially create a whole separate claim under for violation of the National Labor Relations Act as well. Is that right? Absolutely. And can an employee just bring a claim in court for violation of the NLRA? Do they have to file with the National Labor, Labor Relations Board or some other agency or institution before they do that? Sure. So. Uh any individual has the ability to file uh, what's called an unfair labor practice charge uh, with the National Labor Relations Board. Um, and the board itself uh, maintains a host of different uh, offices across the country uh, that's, uh, that have different sort of juris or geographical reaches. Uh, and so typically someone would file the charge in uh, the region covering their geographic location. Uh, that region would investigate uh, the allegations. And at the end of the investigation, uh, the region would make a decision on whether to issue a complaint on behalf of the individual who filed the charge. Uh, and it's a little, the process is a little unique in that uh, it's not a private cause of action. Uh, for employees when they file a charge. Uh, the litigation is primarily handled uh, by board attorneys. Uh, if they find merit to the charge and actually litigate, uh, you have a counsel for the general counsel from the board who, who operates on that employee's behalf. Uh, and obviously in consultation uh, with the actual charging party. So Genera, how do we typically see union employees actually asserting claims for perceived wage and hour violations? So I think um, what you typically will see um, are employees who will bring their claims to their employer first, They'll raise it in, in some type of uh, capacity. Uh, and then when they don't see that their claims are being heard um, from having that direct uh, conversation with their employer, uh, they, can then, they will then go and raise those same complaints uh, with their union representative. Uh, and in raising a claim with uh, the union representative, what you typically find in a unionized context 
is that uh, em employees who are unionized have what's called a collective bargaining agreement, uh, which is essentially a contract uh, between the employer uh, and the collective bargaining representative, uh, which sets out all of the employee's terms and conditions of employment. And typically you'll find uh, what's called a grievance and arbitration provision uh, in a collective bargaining agreement, which is a, a formal process that uh, both parties have agreed uh, to utilize in order to settle disputes that arise under a collective bargaining agreement. And so if you have an employee who's raised uh, a particular issue, which uh, in most instances would be uh, a violation of uh, the wages that they're entitled to receive under the contract, uh, the union representative has the ability to file a grievance on, on that employee's behalf. Uh, and process that grievance through uh, a grievance and typically an arbitration um, provision. Or uh, in other instances, you might find a union representative that believes it's actually more impactful to file the actual wage and hour lawsuit on behalf of all, all of its members covered by that collective bargaining agreement. And so, uh, in unionized contexts, uh, they do have, I think, a, a few more options uh, at their disposal to, to try to get uh, some of their uh, wage complaints addressed. And when these cases come, ar come around, um, you know, obviously the employer is going to want to mount some kind of defense, whether it be, you know, a full-throated defense or, or at least the type of defense that tries to, um, you know, tee up a negotiation that, that result, reaches a favorable result. But what pitfalls do employers need to be mindful of in going out and trying to do fact-finding and investigation to prepare a defense for one of these claims? So I think one of the things employers have to be mindful of is taking a pause before they make any type of uh, rash decision. Um, oftentimes what I see in my practice is an employee raising complaints uh, directly to management can uh, evoke a lot of emotion uh, out of parties. And, and uh, out of emotion, you can see a lot of uh, managers who might respond by uh, engaging in some type of retaliation um, or uh, some type of discrimination. And it's important for employers to be sure that they still remain level-headed when they receive the complaints uh, and do as much work as they can on their end using their own resources to see if they can identify whether there's any validity uh, when it comes to a claim that might be raised uh, by an employee. Uh, and uh, in doing that, I, I would recommend uh, getting that information without having to have the, a direct conversation with the uh, employee. Uh, if it's necessary uh, to get additional information um, from the employee to investigate uh, some of the allegations that are raised, uh, it may be really helpful to actually um, get a union official involved. But I think it's important that before that decision is made, 
uh, there's a, a greater conversation um, with counsel uh, before proceeding. I think you, any employer would want to take the time to sort of assess the materials that they have internally before sort of taking that next step. And that's, you know, that's basically the same whether they're, you know, a unionized shop or, or not a unionized shop, right? If an employee's raising claims, raising issues about how they're being paid um, and claiming that they're being paid improperly or unlawfully or whatever it might be, you know, don't retaliate, right? Investigate the claim, look into it, and figure out, you know, where, if, you know, where you stand as the employer on the issue and then take the next steps. And then I guess if the, you know, what those next, start, next steps are might be different for a unionized shop versus a, a non-unionized shop in terms of reaching a, a oh, remedy. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I think you're right about that, Jeff. So what happens if somebody violates the National Labor Relations Act? Like, what are the, what, you know, we know under the Fair Labor Standards Act, right, you've got to pay back wages or, you know, pay the, the wages that weren't properly paid. There's likely going to be liquidated damages assessed of 100% of the amount that wasn't paid that was, that's, uh, you know, the extent of the violation. Um, attorney's fees, right, things like that. Um, what happens if somebody violates the, you know, National Labor Relations Act? So, well, the, the NLRA is a little different from a remedy perspective. Um, in that the the goal is to provide what's called a make whole remedy for uh, the employee, uh, and it's not uh, designed to be punitive in any way to an employer. And so, in your traditional discharge case, uh, you would see uh, the same uh, back pay uh, that uh, could be awarded by board order. Uh, you'd also see. Uh, a notice posting, which is a traditional remedy um, before the board. Uh, more recently, we're starting to see uh, the board more open and receptive to awarding consequential damages uh, to employees who have been discharged. Uh, and that appears in the form of, uh, they've gone so far as to say, you know, late fees that uh, employees receive that are attributed to not having their uh, wages uh, and uh, sort of penalties for uh, late mortgage payments and things of that nature uh, they're starting to categorize as consequential damages uh, that uh, employers are becoming responsible for paying uh, and so those tend to be the traditional uh, remedies in, in addition to an order of uh, reinstatement uh, also uh, falls into that, that bucket of, of your traditional remedies for the NLRA. So, so if it's determined that an employer has, has, has fired an employee and it was in retaliation for their concerted activities and that's a violation of the NLRA, the, the remedy might be reinstatement of the employee as well as all the other economic stuff. It, it absolutely can be. Uh, and I think in practice, what you do find, uh, the board is showing more of a willingness to allow employees to waive their right uh, to reinstatement in exchange for some type of monetary compensation. Uh, and so although that's not uh, typically what you see in a board order, 
uh, oftentimes in resolution of cases, it will include uh, employees waiving that right of reinstatement uh, for a monetary sum. So, Genera, as we've been talking today, you know, it, it, the interesting thing, right, an interesting thing in our conversation, I think, is that, is that our, um, our, our, our topic here kind of exists at the intersection of two big federal agencies, uh, the National Labor Relations Board on the one hand that we've been talking about as well and as the Department of Labor on the other hand. And we talk about the Department of Labor on this show quite often and their rulemaking activities around um, and how the, those activities affect wage and hour. Um, are you seeing out there areas where uh, the NLRB and the Department of Labor coordinating their activities or communicating at all to try to align their their policy making strategy out there. Oh, absolutely. I definitely think with uh, this Biden administration, uh, they came in with a very labor heavy agenda, uh, and that has absolutely included uh, ensuring that all of the federal agencies that uh, touch and relate to uh, employee and labor relations are very much aligned uh, in uh, their thinking and their movement and their advancement uh, of the law in this area. And so um, as an outgrowth of that uh, very strategic labor agenda, uh, we have seen uh, specifically the National Labor Relations Board and the DOL enter into uh, a number of different memorandums of understanding uh, whereby both agencies actually agree uh, to a level of information sharing uh, with one another. Uh, and we're also seeing uh, that it's becoming a customary practice uh, that if you have, uh, let's say, an employee that has uh, a wage and hour dispute that has uh, NLR uh, implications that the DOL is referring uh, that particular employee over to the NLRB to file uh, companion uh, charges and, and, and vice versa. And so uh, to the extent you have an employer uh, that may be faced with allegations in both forums, I think one thing uh, they have to make sure they're doing is that all of uh, their arguments and all of the documentation that they're providing is consistent uh, because you do have the potential for the two agencies to compare um, you know, both positions that are being put forward as well as evidence. Um, and I think it's also, uh, if it comes down to a question uh, of sort of overlapping allegations, say, uh, as we saw with like a retaliation case, for instance, um, there may be some level of um, forum shopping in terms of one agency uh, deciding to take the lead in prosecution uh, over another. Uh, and so uh, there will be a lot of uh, coordination that would need to take place for employers uh, in having 
um, conversations uh, with both their employment and their traditional labor council. So, so ostensibly, what is a, a possible scenario is that the Department of Labor might be investigating substantial wage violations by an employer, and in the course of that investigation, determine that there's been sort of widespread retaliation against the employees for raising wage and hour issues. And under this new, relatively new arrangement, the, this is a situation where the Department of Labor might reach out to the NLRB and say, by the way, we think that there's some massive violations of the National Labor Relations Act here where employees have been retaliated against for being engaged in concerted activities. Is that the type of thing that we might see? Yeah, that's absolutely something that I've seen. And so, you know, oftentimes the calculus uh, may come down to, you know, which venue might provide uh, the fastest relief uh, for a particular employee. Uh, if there's a belief that uh, pursuing a matter through the NLRB uh, would go, could go through the actual litigation process faster those agencies, they may come to an agreement to allow the NLRB to take the lead. Uh, conversely, it may be uh, that there might be more information gathering uh, that's available and accessible to the DOL in the process of uh, pursuing uh, some type of litigation. And so based on the information that uh, both agencies may want to obtain, uh, there could be an agreement that the DOL would be given uh, the ability to take the lead on prosecution. And so that's something uh, counsel uh, and employers would uh, want to be aware of as well. That, that's, that's interesting, that last point. So in, in, in terms of, of forum shopping, is, is, is it that we're seeing the government agencies maybe deciding among themselves who has the appropriate toolbox or arsenal, whatever metaphor you want to use, to address the, 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 the employer or the, empo the employee situation that is at hand? So the memo was issued um, back at the end of 2021. Uh, and once uh, both agencies made the announcement about the memo, uh, the public started to have enough information so that they could actually take advantage of uh, potentially filing in both forums. And so I think we're now in a process where we're just starting to see um, employees who are taking advantage and we're waiting to see sort of how uh, agencies ultimately come out on sort of the back end on the litigation piece of it. Um, and particularly given uh, sort of how politics are, are playing out and the expectation that we'll see this Biden administration uh, proceed for at least the next uh, two years. Uh, we're anticipating that we'll start to see some of the fruits of the MOU uh, in the very near future. I, I, that's what we're anticipating. And, uh, you know, the NLRB has gone so far as in their own 
um, public uh, case handling manuals to specifically uh, direct their employees that if they find themselves uh, conducting an investigation, an NLRB investigation that raises DOL issues, uh, that they have a responsibility to refer those uh, individuals to the DOL uh, for further processing. I was going to say, so the flip side of that is that you know, the NLRB might be investigating allegations that employees have been retaliated against for whatever concerted activities, maybe in discussing wages, things they might be improper, they might believe are improper about how they're being paid. And the NLRB might look at it and say, oh yeah, we think these are actual wage violations under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And we're going to notify our, you know, our, our colleagues over at the Department of Labor. And then all of a sudden you have not only an NLRB issue, but you have the Department of Labor potentially investigating your underlying wage and hour activities or policies. That's definitely one example. You know, something else that we're starting uh, to see and hear more chatter about is this uh, issue of misclassification. You know, historically, the issue of misclassification has been something that has uh, permeated uh, through wage and hour uh, for quite some time, but it hasn't necessarily been an issue uh, under the National Labor Relations Act. Historically, the board has found uh, that even if an employer uh, misclassified its employees, uh, the misclassification was not a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. Under uh, the current general counsel of uh, the NLRB, uh, she has taken a different position. Uh, she has uh, issued an advisory opinion, uh, and in that opinion, she's made it very clear that it, it is her belief uh, that an employer that misclassifies an employee, um, whether doing so intentionally or unintentionally, um, violates the National Labor Relations Act. Um, this is a, a remarkable uh, sort of change uh, in the theory uh, of misclassification serving as a violation under the act. And so we're uh, here on the traditional labor side, we're waiting to see uh, with bated breath uh, how and whether uh, courts will respond uh, to the position that the general counsel is taking. Um, but, uh, you know, that is one instance where I could foresee uh, the NLRB, if they're uh, alleging uh, misclassification of employees, referring uh, an employee to the DOL and vice versa. So, of course, this seems to me to be uh, a, a place where this resource sharing could really have a significant impact because one wonders whether NLRB by itself has the, the budgetary capacity, the resources, the, the human power to really get in and pursue misclassification claims. But if it's out referring these claims to the Department of Labor, um, it really does become something of a, of a two-headed monster that maybe employers should, should be pretty concerned about. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And so uh, I think now is a good time uh, if, if you have an employers who are either on the traditional labor side seeing issues or, or wage an hour. 
issues that they start to have uh, some concerted conversations uh, about the best way to pursue um, and defend uh, in any potential lawsuit. And of course, out here in, in California, we have pretty much the, the, the default is don't do independent contractor <laughs> agreements in California, but that's not necessarily the case in the other 49 states. Um, do you think, given this threat, it's a good idea for employers just to, even if they're not in California, if they're in other places, to, to be auditing their independent contractor relationships and, and really looking to see how strongly they, they feel about them in light of what the, the, these agencies might be up to? I think that would definitely be wise, Damien. And, and to that extent, I know, you know a lot of employers have a practice of sort of reassessing uh, you know, the status of, of their workers uh, in terms of ensuring that they're properly classified, uh, assessing on a regular basis you know, their employees' exempt versus non-exempt status. I think for those employers that may be a little bit uh, more lax uh, in going through that sort of internal auditing process, now might be the time uh, where they sort of tighten the reins a little bit. And that wraps up this edition of the Ackerman Angle. We want to thank our partner, Janera Tice, again for joining us today to talk about labor and wage and hour issues and the intersection of the two. Thanks, Janera. Thanks for having me.